The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so um, I thought we would in a few minutes do another sitting, but <clears throat> first I want to uh, read and have a discussion. This this came in the mail today when you were having a little discussion. I went and uh, went had went checked the mail, and then this came to me, and um, it seems like a very nice coincidence that you come today. Or um, this person's asking me to. They gave me a card too to self, you know, so I could reply. And um, so she, uh, she asks, I think it's a she, to provide some answer to a question that's troubled me for many years. Why was the Buddha um, uh, and all the other Buddhas before him and after him, why was he able to smile in spite of all the intentional cruelty in the world of humankind. Because, you know, they say the Buddha sits here and half smile. And, uh, and uh, so why, how could the Buddha smile with all the cruelty, intentional cruelty that exists in this world? So she wants me to provide an answer on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Any recommendations of what I say? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Why does the Buddha smile in the face of all the suffering of the world? What came up for me was um, the person with a very small smile on the playground of this is how it is. Mm-hmm. This is how it is. It's part of the whole. It's not the whole. The suffering is not all of it. But it's part of it. Part of the whole. So the Buddha smiles because he sees, he sees a bigger picture than just the suffering. Okay. And the people who are running around anxious in the playground don't see the full picture. So what else? Any other ideas? Of well, I just had a thought. Hello? Hello? I just had a thought. The Dalai Lama's face um, was right in front of me. And um, he always giggles and laughs and um, uh, the Buddha has a half smile and I think for me it means to take things lightly to remind you that you're, that seriousness all the time and heaviness um, you need to be able to lighten up great does that make sense for me? it makes a lot of sense yeah thank you so uh, uh, what came to mind for me is uh, I've sometimes heard people who've gone through great suffering say that many gifts came with it as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we think of suffering as being a total negative, but that's not always completely the, the story. Uh-huh. So again, the Buddha is able to take a bigger, bigger picture, a longer term picture of the impact of these things. Perhaps uh, the Buddha is uh, practicing karuna and he has a sense of well-being. Mm. And he knows that um, as he's meditating on karuna, he will uh, find the appropriate response, and that gives him uh, a sense of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Great. 
This relates back to something that we were talking about this morning, kind of for me too. Um, I'm an urgent care physician, and so um, I get people in in all kinds of states of suffering, including people with, you know, metastatic cancer reoccurring and stuff like that. And it can be a little overwhelming at times. Or and so, for me, one of my practices has been about um, how how does that not be overwhelming? Um, the suffering that these people are going through. And I don't even know, I don't know what exactly how to describe this, but it's just kind of like not getting it caught in me, but letting it wash over me like a wave and just wash through me. It's through me. It's not, it's, it's still there, but it goes through me rather than into me and stuck there. Nice. Thank you. It's nice. And um, is there some, can you imagine, or is there some appropriate smile that's appropriate in most of those moments of crisis in the, in the ER? Yeah, I think there's small moments of relief or release or comfort that can happen in those moments that mm. could precipitate a smile. Uh-huh. Great. Thank you. Because the Buddha has the answer and he's teaching it. Uh-huh. So he has the answer to the sufferings. Yeah, uh-huh. and he's teaching it to others. Yeah. Okay, that's nice. Any other thoughts about why would the Buddha smile in the face of this tremendous suffering of this world? I think the half smile can be a form of encouragement. Mm, okay. Good, okay. Thank you. My thought was that um, he, he must be per, um, experiencing or knowing uh, the opposite of all of that suffering, I guess. Well, he knows the opposite of suffering. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you can't know joy until you know suffering. Oh, you can't know joy until... You, so he knows suffering well. Yes. He so knows the it. more suffering you know, the more you know joy. Mm, interesting. And the more uh, you realize that with, uh, you face your fears, the worst, when the worst thing happens, mm. everything's great. So I tell my friends when they've gone through something terrible, you know, even if they... It, it's okay if you don't survive. It honestly is, does not make any difference. Mm. But you get past that and everything else is great. Mm. So combined, the last you and the last two sta- last statement was, is that the Buddha knows suffering through and through, and he knows the opposite of suffering. He knows the other side of it. So 
so that so he can half smile, so the half smile of encouragement. Isn't it his proper his his inner nature that comes through the face through the smile? I mean, I know with Titnatan when we used to say it, the first thing he would say, "Put a smile on your face," you know, and that changes automatically the whole body, the whole uh, attitude. So maybe his smile has nothing to do with the suffering of the world. It's just that it's his nature to smile, and as he meets the suffering of the world, he feels it. He's there for it, but uh, the smile is not tied to the world, it's tied to what's on the inside, maybe. Which is, you know, not how we usually think. We usually think that we have to be impacted properly by what goes on. There's a kind of independence of... A uh, part of Dharma practice is to, to become independent of what we know. If we're entangled with what we know, then we're, we're caught, right? It's a certain kind of independence of what we know. And maybe the Buddha has independent in his compassionate care. I was trying to think about this uh, because someone I see on a regular basis at work uh, is somebody who is from Iraq. He's a Christian minister. And he also worked with the American soldiers some. Yeah. They send his family out because it was too dangerous. Anyway, he saw a great many things. And he has a very genuine, deep smile. And for him, I mean, to me, that's a really great example of a living person that's doing this. Yeah. And I think for him is his sense of mission and what he's doing. You know, that he's I don't, not sure what he, you know, serving Jesus or uh, you know, doing yeah. something like this. That that's deeper than even the things that he witnessed and knew. Great. So it's a little bit, little, I think a little bit of what the person who said the Buddha had the answers. He knows the <laughs> answers. He has a mission, he's teaching, he knows what he's doing. So he's not, he's not drowning in the suffering of the world. He's not frightened by it or feel like it's hopeless. He has a sense of purpose, of hope. He's, he's going to teach. As long as he can teach, he teaches. And he did for 45 years. Also, unlike certain religious figures, he's not causing any of the suffering. (laughs) (laughs) The smile of not causing suffering, not causing harm. Great. Okay, yes. The really large Buddhas, like the one in Japan, but in Kamikura, um, Am I correct in remembering that they all ha- that the Buddhas have their eyes most partially closed or mostly closed? I think it's common for the statues to have the Buddha's eyes half open. Half open. And okay. um, and one one theory for that is that um, the Buddha is staying connected to the world, but he's not you know involved in the world. The eyes wide open, looking, but he's pre- he's very present, very centered, very grounded, very free but he's not aloof or separated from the world. He's still available and attentive to what's happening. So that combination, the half-open eyes is the combination of just the balance of that. Okay, great. So, a few things about compassion. So, in... The early Buddhist tradition, which is kind of like the topic for today, there are two different, there's more than two, but two primary different words for compassion. 
and one is anukampa and the other is karuna. Anukampa is the active compassion where you actually intervene, step in, offer someone some support. And then there's a karuna, which the way it appears in this early tradition text, I don't want to call it passive compassion, that seems pretty, doesn't seem right. But uh, the, uh, the way it's presented in the text, karuna is, um, is a state of mind that uh, it doesn't really involve responding to the world. It's just a state of, mi- state of mind that's compassionate. And the most common place where that state of mind is, is uh, described is in a, a kind of a meditative state where the mind is peaceful, calm, boundless, radiant, uh, encompassing all things. But it, as far as we can tell from the descriptions, there, no particular object is uh, mentioned. It's just a state of radiance, of, of compassion, of care. And, uh, and, uh, but both these kinds of compassion... Um, it seems that the early tradition kind of presents it as just a given. It's just a given that people are compassionate. There's not like a justification for it. You should be compassionate because, um, or this is the reason you're compassionate, or this is what you do to become compassionate. It's just like a given that you're going to be compassionate. Over time in Buddhism, a variety of different theories arose, or ideas arose, and one of them in in the modern West among Buddhists uh, I don't know how, how common it is anymore now, but it was very common in the 80s or so, was there's a lot of, lot of reference point to an open heart. An open heart will naturally be compassionate. It's just what, you know, the, that's what the open heart, a relaxed heart, a heart that's just not caught up in its delusion or its greed and hate, uh, just available, that it'll resonate, it'll respond compassionately to the world. In uh, some Mahayana Buddhist schools, they have a wonderful philosophy of, of um, that um, um, uh, emptiness, the great philosophy and the great reality of emptiness has compassion within it. Uh, or they talk about, sometimes they talk about the, in Tibetan Buddhism the, the, lo, the, um, the jewel and the lotus. And some people say the, 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 uh, the lotus is the mind which opens up, beautiful mind. And uh, that's the lotus and the jewel is compassion. It's in the middle. It's just as the lotus opens, that jewel shines forth. It's just there. In terms of karuna, um, there's no definition of the term in the text, early texts. And there's no explanation of how you would have karuna. Like you do these things and then you can have karuna. But there are descriptions, a little bit like that, but what they are is, um, there are descriptions that if you get um, inspired, in faith, in the possibility of liberation, or have some sense of liberation, if you, um, in that faith, uh, you are feel happy and delighted, and with that happiness and delight, you then get concentrated, deep concentration. That then, what arises, seemingly, is compassion, or love, loving uh, the four Brahma Viharas: loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And here, it's a, a, the strong states of, of these Brahma-viharas is a byproduct of getting the mind a soft, still, open, concentrated, unruffled, unca- not caught up in anything. It's just the mind is kind of uh, 
very peaceful and available and open and still. That in that state, the, what will resonate, what will, what's there, is, happens to be compassion. So what some people would like to, some people say, is that compassion or love is our nature. It's like that's who we really are. Under, underneath all the, the, you know, complicated, difficult emotions we have and reactions we have and thoughts we have, uh, buried deep down inside is a natural state of, of love that can operate if we can just kind of clear, you know, clear out the fog, clear out the clouds and the mud, and then it would naturally be there. And, uh, and then some people feel, well, that's not good Buddhism to say there's some essence underneath it. <clears throat> and some people say, no, there's no, there's no compassion underneath there waiting for us, you know. But rather, <clears throat> they'll, they'll say there's the potential for compassion waiting for us. Just like we have the, uh, the potential to do evil, we have the potential to, to, to do good, to, do, to, to have love. And that, um, and, but somehow, uh, uh, in, when the, you need certain conditions to do evil, you need certain conditions for the radiance of love. And one of the conditions for this love to forth is a mind which has been purified, so there's a, where there's no greed and hate and all these things are not there. The heart, the mind is open, and then it'll be there. So in some ways, maybe it's not so satisfying, this kind of analysis, that it's just a natural state or close to a natural state. It's just there. Um, the expectation that it, it's just a, in the text, you see over and over again, just the Buddha just expect that people will be compassionate. It's just like, of course you would be. You're human. And so in terms of, um, you know, it's not very encouraging for people who, you know, don't have access to their compassion. You know What? <laughs> Now I feel even worse about myself. And, uh, <clears throat> but, um, but it's a quite magic, wonderful what happens when the mind gets quiet and no longer in a reactive mode. And then it's the, in that peacefulness, you know, the mind is still there, operates, and the tremendous goodness that can so- somehow flow out in a mind that's quiet and peaceful and still. And that some of that seems to be these wonderful Brahma Viharas. So in my, in my practice, um, as I kind of said this morning, I was surprised by how much compassion was o- awakened in me um, in this process of letting go and being present, being present for my suffering, letting go, just being there and opening the heart, opening the heart. And then this compassion kind of and then later I was surprised, and that was when I was doing Zen practice, and then when I was doing Vipassana practice, which was at later time when I wasn't suffering so much, um, then uh, what awoke, what I was surprised by, was the awakening or the appearance of, uh, of metta, of loving kindness. They're just kind of there in kind of a radiant way. And I said, what? Because <laughs> I didn't like metta before. I thought it was silly. I thought it was kind of, you know, hallmark Buddhism. You know, and I came from Zen, you know, and we just cut right to the truth, you know, and pulled the rug from underneath us and we left with nothing, you know, and just sentimental stuff, loving kindness, just, ah. <laughs> you know. And uh, so, um, but, so I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have much patience for this loving kindness thing. But then I, but then I was surprised that as I s- sat and my mind became stiller and more open, that it just welled up on its own. A beautiful thing to happen. 
So um, let's do a sitting. And if uh, you're particularly tired after lunch, you're welcome to sit with the half-open eyes of a Buddha. (laughs) And uh, so then you can... And also it might be useful to sit up straighter if you're tired. And also, if you're a little bit sleepy or tired, it's, <clears throat> it's good to emphasize the inhale, because the inhale tends to be more energizing. So you might take a few long, deep breaths, and let yourself feel the energy of breathing in, the upwellingness of the body, torso, the shoulders. As you exhale, see if you can relax the thinking muscle. Relax that part of your being that's involved in discursive thoughts and conversations in your head and planning and wanting and judging. See if any tension and pressure in the thinking muscle can Relax and soften. Perhaps you can soften your belly as well. Letting your belly hang forward and down and be tugged on by the force of gravity. So there's a settling deeper into your being. I try having a small half smile, pulling up the corners of your lips a little bit. Enough, pulling up your corners of the just enough until you feel some lightness or delight or good energy.
And then as we continue sitting with maybe a half smile, see if there's any place within, any way within that you can touch into compassion, to care, caring for others with an open heart. And you might bring to mind some people in a relaxed way and, and see if you can hold the caring concern for them, wishing them well, in a very open and relaxed field. For now, nothing you need to do, nothing you need to solve, no need to fix anything, but to take in some suffering and see if you can let compassion be a response. The wish, the aspiration that the person not suffer, the concern that their suffering passes. And I'm going to offer some different words for you as we sit here and see what responds inside of you to these words. So we have the, the capacity to feel compassion. Does the word compassion land in you? And then there's sympathy. Be sympathetic. And how does sympathy feel? Where in your body do you experience sympathetic feelings?
And then there's caring. We can care for someone. What resonates inside of you with the word caring? And then there's love. What resides inside of you? What responds in you to the idea of love? And finally, what can you let go of so that love, compassion, sympathy can operate freely in you without any distress? What can you let go of
So I hope that what we've done so far has given you <clears throat> something to uh, think, think about, explore, work with in your life. The idea that there can be compassion in a very meaningful and important way that um, does not involve feeling any distress or anxiety or, or worry or but it just allows the allows the the um, allows us to feel and respond, be present for it, but to have a sense of well-being, a sense of being settled. We don't lose our balance. We don't lose our sense of stability. We don't lose our independence. We don't lose our our um, even our half smile. I think this is very foreign to many people and <clears throat> maybe it's a little bit of a strange idea to you. But uh, I think that it's a really powerful thing, <clears throat> really a wonderful gift we can give the world if we can meet the world with our compassionate care you know, without bringing along with it our, our stress, our tension, our worry or anxiety or distress that we might have. I think we can be much more effective in the world. Imagine that you are distressed about something. Some good, really juicy, good, (laughs) worthwhile distress, really, having a hard time. And two people come to see you, both of them who have real genuine compassion for you. But one is just wringing her fingers and all upset, you know, so worried and, you know, oh, this is terrible and oh my God, what are we going to do? We have to do something. And the other one has the same, compa- same compassion, it's there. But the other one is relaxed, is calm, is like there with you and sits down and is present, maybe holds your hand and just, you feel this calm presence. What would you prefer? I think, I hope it's self-evident, the answer. So I, the human brain, human mind, seems to have this capacity to uh, uh, not get caught in distress in the face of suffering in the world. To be able to stay relaxed, stay open, stay present. And in not getting caught, it has also capacity then to meet that with care and concern and wishing for the welfare of others and wanting the welfare of others. And it's considered one of the, I think one of the most beautiful qualities of the human mind, heart, <clears throat> our compassionate care that, that's like this in this kind of way. And to have it stand out, <clears throat> get strong. And maybe the balance between the empathy where we feel the suffering of others and the compassion, uh, not the balance, but at some point the compassion gets so strong that it can hold everything. And part of the teachings of Buddhism is that um, you don't have that compassion is something that can be developed and grow. And partly it grows from the early tradition of Buddhism. It grows by the degree to which the mind is free. The less free we are, the more caught we are, the less compassion has a chance to flower. The more free we are, the more it has a chance to flower. It's like make space for it, for it to grow and develop. So that's my best effort to uh, that I have of trying to somehow 
present to you how I've understood this early teachings of Buddhism. Uh, it's, uh, all this is something that I feel like I've uh, benefited from and experienced through my own practice in ways that I feel profoundly grateful for. Uh, it was a gift the practice gave me which I had no idea was waiting. It's a great thing. So uh, what I thought we would do now is take a break and come back for our last session. And I have this idea that it might be nice to spend the break in silence. And uh, just to kind of keep this kind of settled and connected to yourself so you can kind of let, let all this kind of settle in and resonate. and Maybe keep it all close to you as you kind of percolate and process and you know, what's, uh, what, this, what we've done so far today. And, um, and then when we come back, what I'd like us to do is to sit in one big circle. And uh, so, um, so we'll take a 15-minute break. So we'll start in here again at, in two, at 2.40.